Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Amanda Held Opelt, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. Dan, I'm really excited to have this conversation uh, with you. Thanks for having me on. So people might recognize, oh, that that middle name, Held. That sounds mm-hmm. like someone I know, Rachel Held <laughs> Evans. That is your sister. She is my sister. You're right. Yeah. Let me retake that in the past tense. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you like that present tense or past tense? Uh she is. I mean, I, yeah. I, it's hard to say. I, I kind of go back and forth. I find myself going both ways yeah. because the impact she had, the identity that she added to my life still is, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll leave that in. There's a little behind the scenes for you as you try and yeah. in real time figure out how to talk about something <laughs> talk difficult. Talk about death. Yes, yeah, exactly. Death. So, yeah. You know, yeah. so she passed away uh, a few years back and- I would say in this community of sort of, you know, faith deconstruction, reconstruction, faith change, 
she was an absolute titan is probably the right word. I mean, really probably top five or 10 most influential thinkers and authors in that world. And so I don't know where, I don't know where to go with that, except Mm -hmm. that you had a front row seat to all of that, as well as to her very tragic and very sudden passing. Yeah. I sometimes say to my husband, like, it's possible that the progressive movement of Christianity in America began at our dining room table, like, and just to kind of see it all unfold and, and watch her, her journey and not what it looked like academically or sociologically, culturally, but really personally, like what is the personal experience of deconstructing of relearning your faith of your faith evolving of it changing the grief that goes with that the turmoil the anxiety i wish people who were suspicious of call it what you will liberalism progressivism whatever the case may be i wish they could have had a seat at that table and seen the struggle that people really go through that it it, it wasn't it wasn't a decision it wasn't that she woke up one morning and said i'm going to upend evangelicalism in america I'm going to, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to listen to my own internal bias. I, it was just a journey. It was just a series of revelations or changes, questions that weren't answered. And I had the privilege of seeing that and, and seeing the humanity and the kind, the kindness she maintained throughout it, you know? Totally. I, I think she was both the canary in the coal mine and the tip of the spear. Mm. So by which I mean, she was able to articulate, like you're saying, that sort of raw, almost like an autobiographical angle on deconstruction yeah. and mm-hmm. rethinking of faith, this sort of intensely personal, intensely experiential, finding this this given tradition extremely lacking. Yeah. In the intro of this podcast, the repeated intro, you know, I talk about bad answers to good questions that people tend yeah. to have. You know, yeah. she was like, oh, these are bad answers. And I think these are good questions. So she's the canary yeah. in the coal mine, but then she's also the tip of the spear in that she's one of the first people to do it publicly and she was a woman. So she mm-hmm. just gets basically jumped on a, a thousand grenades for everybody yeah. else and didn't yeah. get sort of maybe some of the benefit of the doubt that someone like I would get, you know, coming five, eight years later, yeah. or even a, a man like Rob Bell might get for a while yeah. until he finally says the one thing they can't <laughs> handle, you know, like a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you get that misogyny mixed in with just being earlier, uh, yeah. maybe even first in a lot of ways. And, and then you mentioned her graciousness throughout that. I mean, it reminds me of when I met Tom Ord and Keith Ward, two theologians who are like, very progressive theologically. Yeah. And I saw like Christ in them and I just saw how kind they were. And like, these are obviously, obviously men of intense faith. That's what I never met Rachel, but that's kind of what I got from her, from what I could see. You know, it's, and it was so interesting in her, in her death to see the outpouring of grief that even the people that she had sparred most intensely with on Twitter and in real life debates were so brokenhearted by her loss. And I think it's because as much kind of ire as she drew from conservative circles, Rachel had this really unique ability to approach her 
don't know, quote unquote adversaries with grace and with love because she was the person that could speak, I think, to people on both sides of the aisle, the really angry ex-evangelical the religious nuns who were tired of it, fed up with it, she could speak to them, but she could also speak to the people that were stuck in that messy middle, the people who still kept one or two toes in evangelicalism, even the people that were still fully in it. She yeah. knew how to speak to them and she she empathized with their perspective and could see where they were coming from and, and didn't think they were crazy for being who they were or what they thought. She was just, she was a bridge builder much more than I think people give her credit for. I think they see her as this polarizing figure, but I think time will tell and history will show that she was actually much more of a bridge builder than people give her credit for. That's certainly my sense from having paid you know fairly close attention, especially to the sort of public back and forths that she was yeah. a part of. So now you're, you know, now you have written this really beautiful book about grief and loss and its role in human experience and its role in Christian faith. But give us a little background so that we have more context for talking about that. People have asked me occasionally, like, how has your faith journey been different than your sister's? I think one of the biggest differences in the path that we walked, the journey that we took was that I left home. Like I went to school in New York for a year and and was exposed to kind of different expressions of Christianity. I went to India, uh, spent some time in India after college and saw that, oh my goodness, Christianity looks different here than it looks in America. And, and that's okay. Like they're, they're faithful people. They really love the Lord. They just have different theological ideas than I do. And then I went to um, Nashville after that and did social work for a time and was exposed to just kind of just some of these systemic injustices and poverty in our own backyard that I was really kind of sheltered from growing up that I didn't feel like the evangelical church of my upbringing really talked about, but all these different exposures, it just showed me, it it slowly revealed to me that there is a different way and a, a different expression of the faith that can still be faithful in the world. I think that meant that when some of the theological systems that I grew up with started to kind of crumble or or started to come into question, I had a much softer place to land because it wasn't like, oh, this is all there is. It was like, oh, well, maybe there are things that we got wrong. You know, that doesn't mean the whole premise of God and Christ and Jesus and the cross is is completely flawed or, or meaningless. And Yeah, that's kind of what I was doing when she was writing is I was doing social work in in Nashville. And then um, for the last 10 years, uh, I've worked in international aid work, doing like staff care for aid workers. I wasn't like a proper aid worker myself. I always like to make that disclaimer. And, And to my sadness now, I was watching Rachel's work in some ways from a distance. We were both really busy people. And so, and our work was so, so different. Um, What I would give to go back now and cancel some of those international trips to just sit and have coffee with her and really understand more about what she was thinking and what she was feeling. But I wish I'd asked more questions. You know, I wish I had known more about how hard it was because it, it was, it was hard. It was painful for her. Like she put on, I think a really kind and brave exterior in many ways, but I know, I know it was hard to take some of the stands that she did and take some of the yeah. heat that she did. And so I remember her sitting at the dinner table one night and saying like, I, I haven't left evangelicalism. They left me like, they don't want yeah. me here. They don't want me to be part of this community. 
Um, I love evangelicals, but, but they don't want me anymore. And just seeing, you know, what, what that did to her, it was, it was hard. It was hard to watch. And I kind of wish I'd been there for her a little bit more, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's an, it's an early kind of grief actually there in, in being left by a community that you are in some ways a part of. I'm wondering too, when you're caring for aid workers, if there was some sort of secondary, maybe secondary trauma, that's, by the way, that's a term for when you can, people can be traumatized by hearing other people's stories and experiences mm-hmm. of trauma. It's a real concern for therapists and social workers and other clinicians who work with traumatized clients. Mm-hmm. And it's a real concern for aid workers. It's a, yeah. There's a lot of research right. about that. So you're working with them. I, I'm wondering if there's any harbingers for you of, of the you know, direct experience of grief and loss that were to come, you know, now mm-hmm. you, you will talk about them, but in those years uh, or, or before of working with those aid workers, any foreshadowing, any sort mm-hmm. of anything like that? I think that I thought because I had been to war zones, to areas of famine, outbreaks, I thought, okay, I've seen some suffering. Like I've yeah. seen some real suffering and I've spent a lot of years talking with people about their experience of suffering. You know, a lot of what my job was, was training people on factors for resilience. What are some kind of basic things you can do to be resilient kind of within the context of high trauma, whether that's, you know, simple things like sleep and, you know, decent food and drinking water and also meaningful connections and finding meaning in your suffering and uh, those type of things. We, we talked a lot about that. I thought I was really well prepared for suffering then. I thought, okay, I have helped people construct a theology of suffering for 10 years. So when I, when I meet my own story of sorrow, I'm going to nail it. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to like <laughs> breeze right through it because yeah. I'm a professional. Like I'm a professional at yeah. loss, at suffering at death, even, you know, I'd seen a lot of death. I'd seen people die in a war zone. So I thought I'm going to be okay. So then when I was very much not okay, when it happened to me, I realized how different it is to kind of be an observer of someone else's loss Mm -hmm. versus kind of living at the epicenter of your own loss. I think you were maybe right in that you did know what you were going to have to do when loss came to your backyard. Yeah. And you could imagine someone in your position having done a much worse job than you have done. <laughs> like for instance, the need to process traumatic experiences, to talk about them. Often people will write about them. Journaling is a, a very common exercise for traumatic experiences for clients, right? For working that out. And so you have done that. You wrote you wrote a book about it. You yeah. have gone back through and processed it. The thing is, the phrase making meaning around your mm-hmm. suffering, oh, that sounds very wonderful. Oh, all this meaning people are going to have. But like, yeah. it fucking sucks to do that. It, it hurts, right? Yep. It's not a fun experience. It's an right. awful experience. Right. And I think this, like, this deep desire that we have to kind of find a silver lining, to know the redemption story. You know, we, we still believe that everything happens for a reason. Like we still believe that we're right. kind of products of our experiences, right? Like all these bad things are going to happen to me, but it's going to be okay because it's going to make 
something beautiful of my life or it's going to result in all these good things. And I've had to really come to the realization that like, there may be no discernible purpose for this. Like you don't have to like ring out all the altruistic meaning in order to feel okay about your life. Like it's okay to just say that was bad. That was a horrible experience. I never want anything like that to happen again. The end. Like you don't have to say, yeah, but I learned so much or, but I gained so much wisdom. That might be true, but we don't have to make the bad thing good in order to move forward. Like we don't have to change, like flip the category somehow. We can just say it's unequivocally bad. That was a bad thing that happened. And I hope it never happens to anybody else. And I hope it never happens to me again. One of my favorite sort of theological tie-ins with psychological care is to think about what's called the just world hypothesis. So that's the language they use in cognitive processing therapy for which I am... uh, technically trained in (laughs) done a short training. Are we ever fully trained in that? Well, I haven't like done a full, you know, regimen with clients or anything, but I, but I did, I went through the training and I've used some elements with clients and the just world hypothesis is this kind of background assumption that a traumatized client might have, which is that, like you said, everything happens for a reason. Essentially, The world is just and people get suffering according to how much they have deserved it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very common assumption. It's essentially the the main theological assumption of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, that's right. Flipped flipped from suffering to prosperity, although you get Mm -hmm. both people kind of, you know, it's like, well, there's there's essentially a divine equation. And you put in your inputs, God is the same and God runs the equation. And therefore you do your inputs, right? You get your right outputs. God will bless you. You will have favor, you whatever, right? Yeah. What this does for someone who's experienced trauma is it shifts the blame onto them. Yeah, that's right. Because if it's just, then I deserved it somehow. And you can imagine if the goal is to process through trauma, especially if something just awful has happened to to you by chance, uh, one of the things that CPT therapists will work with clients on is challenging and working with trying to dismantle this just world hypothesis. And Mm. I just think, gosh, the the theological richness of that, right? So you get into, you lose your sister, and we're going to talk about some of the other losses that you experienced, pregnancies, grandparent, and- you know, you can't, if you, if you believe just world, you're kind of, fucked. I mean, I don't know what else you can really do at that point. You are just going to walk around sort of like a ghost, like a shell, yeah. like a, well, I guess this is my living purgatory or something like that. Yeah. And how sad. I'm so glad you brought this up. Cause this is something I've really been wrestling with. I mean, this is not a new like this equation is not new. It's as old as time, right? It is. I, I've heard, I'm going to show my evangelical roots here and talk about Michael Card, who I love still and hold near and dear. He talks about how like, that's, that's kind of like Torah obedience, right? Like if you, if you follow my commands, God will bless you. It's interesting because the Bible, the old Testament doesn't necessarily refute that, but every single story it tells kind of upends it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That there's like these faithful people who experience suffering. There are people who are 
lovers of God, seekers of God, who then fall into a pit of their own failure. Like it doesn't, we, we are not sanctified in this straight upward line. Yeah. And we just suffer by our own hands and by the hands of other people. That's kind of the point I think that Michael Card tries to make is that, yes, there is, there is some sense of truth. But if you follow the ways of God, if you, if, if you produce the fruit of being with his spirit, there's some goodness to that fruit. There, there's goodness towards when you love people, when you act in ways that are just, when you tell the truth, all of these things, there's, you will reap good fruit from that. But that doesn't mean that your life is going to be categorically good by the world's measure of goodness and blessing and prosperity and abundance. And that kind of the journey of scripture, according to Michael Card, is the journey from like, Torah obedience, like blessing equals prosperity to presence of God. Like what, what God's really after is intimacy and presence and relationship with us, which he, his, his walking through us with our suffering is, is kind of the great gift. It doesn't, I don't know that it negates the severity of the experience. It just is the companionship through it, if that makes sense. But I, I, I wrestle with it because I do, I do think there is something to be said about like, be a good person and it will go well with you. Like <laughs> it's going to help yeah. you to be a good person that does the right thing, but it doesn't mean everything's going to work out just how you want it to. I think it's, it's somewhere in between the world is entirely random on one side and there yeah. are no consequences to our choices. And then on the other side, the world is entirely just and, and every, every, you know, karma is active now is yeah. imminently always active, ensuring just outcomes. You know, yeah. I don't know a ton about karma in the Eastern traditions, but I think that with reincarnation and you have sort of some outs where you don't yeah. have to say, you're, you're not necessarily going to get it in this life because yeah, yeah. this world is not just, Yeah, but neither yeah. is it unstructured entirely. Like, yeah. Like I think in the Bible, you have parts of like Proverbs, which really seem to say, Hey, if you fear the Lord, you're going to prosper. Yeah. And to some degree, like that can be true. This is perhaps an oversimplification, but the way that like the Mormon community, the LDS community has prioritized like stability and hard work and, and whatever. And like they are pretty prosperous, yep. you know, like yep. if you go to business school, your business will probably be better. You yeah, know, like but, it's not there's not yeah. no connection. But then you also have Job, where essentially Job's friends are telling him the just world hypothesis. Yeah, that's and right. And God's like, no, no. <laughs> you know, where were you when I created when I created the whirlwind? Like, it's not it, it doesn't work like your friends right. think it works. And the whole yeah. story gives the lie. We know beforehand that like Job doesn't get all that stuff because he was bad. In fact, he gets all that stuff because he was good in that story, right? And so. We we have to live in between. It was like a satanic dare. You know what I mean? Like the divine council, this mysterious divine council was meeting yeah. and Satan like six God on Job. And yeah. I, I think we take for granted that we kind of know the backstory of Job's suffering and Job never does. Like we get the, the curtain pulled back for us. We saw what was going on underneath it all. Job never gets the privilege of that point of view. The reason for his suffering remains a mystery to him. 
until the very end. And I think that that lack of tolerance for mystery, I think is, is something that is really pervasive in our culture. Like we just have this sense that we have a lot of agency over our outcomes. And you know what we do, we have a lot more than people used to in the 13 and 1400s. Like we have vaccines and germ theory and airplanes and internet. And we have a lot of control over our life and our health and our technology and our movement and our station in life. We have a lot more control than we used to have. But we we still don't have control over death. We still don't have control fully over our circumstances. And so I think this kind of illusion of agency then makes us say, well, I need to know why then. I need to know, tell me why. Why did this happen? How did this happen? So I can, you know, it's like after action review. How can I fix it next time? And we have got to maintain a better relationship with the concept of mystery, I think. Like we've just got to develop a higher, higher tolerance for it to say there are many things that happen that we have no idea why, and we aren't going to be able to fix it. And we, we're not going to be able to circumvent it or kind of think our way out of it. It's just, it is what it is. And there's not a lot we can do about it. And we've just, we've got to re- maintain that sense of vulnerability. I think if we're not going to be completely surprised <laughs> at every turn in our life, you know? So mystery came in and smacked you upside the head in a in a pretty short period of time what should we know about that period of time yeah a miscarriage is a good way of talking about mystery i think because you know if anyone who's experienced pregnancy loss knows that infertility a loss of a pregnancy there are many times if not most times they actually have no idea why it happens it just happens and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, this has been after several years of uh, infertility and finally kind of feeling like, oh, miraculously, we're pregnant. And then the, the baby doesn't make it to the to the second trimester. And just me saying to the doctor, well, why? Like, what happened? And she said, well, we don't we don't know. And I was like, what do you mean you don't know? How can you not know? Like, how can you not know? Like, we know we listen to the sound of black holes. Like, we know yeah. we know how many galaxies there are in the universe. We know. How can you not know what happened? Yeah, it was just, just gave me tissues and said, I'm really sorry. Like, yeah. take some ibuprofen, you know? And so I think that was kind of the beginning. What kind of began a season of grief for me was three three pregnancy losses and uh, the loss of a, a grandparent. I, you know, I'd lost other grandparents before, but these were grandparents that were older. They lived far away. It was kind of death in the right order, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Death that you'd been prepared for your whole life. But this was a grandmother who was really healthy. She lived close to me. We spent a lot of time with her. And I went on a work trip to Africa, to Congo, and she got really sick suddenly and died. And I, I couldn't make it home for the funeral. And so kind of missing those last moments with her missing kind of the the rituals of grief that I needed to kind of process what had happened. That was really hard. So I walked through that and then the pregnancy losses. And then I also spent, um, just had a couple of really difficult work trips, like work trips that took me to some pretty horrific places and just saw with my own eyes, like what, what is warfare really do to its victims? What does it do to communities? And that was jarring. You know, it was like this very visceral experience for me of like, oh, okay, war doesn't just happen on the TV. It happens in real life. This is what it smells like. This is what it sounds like. Yeah. It was frightening, you know? And then probably what was the most kind of 
catastrophic. The atom bomb really that went off in my life was, was Rachel's death. She was perfectly healthy. It was just not something anybody, anybody saw coming. It still feels shocking to say it like Rachel died. That's not possible. She had a three-year-old and an 11 month old at the time. And so by that point I had a baby at which it was this beautiful experience of wanting a baby for so long, having a baby, figuring out how to be a new mom, you know, and just all the chaos that goes with that. And then suddenly stepping into this family crisis isn't even a sufficient word. It was just everything fell apart. It felt like, and trying to figure out, okay, what's my role now? Like I have a niece and nephew without a mother. I have parents who are aging without their daughter. I'm an only child now. Like what, what do we need to do? And just the, the months and even the years that my husband and I have spent kind of figuring out not, not, it's not just grieving the relational loss. Gosh, I wish that was all it was. That would be yeah. a luxury. You know, we've also kind of had to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to support my parents? What do we need to do to support my niece and nephew? Wow. What do we need to do to support my, my aunt who's single, who we were her next of kin, you know, all of these things that like, suddenly you feel like you kind of have a million more responsibilities than you did before. And so I know that there's going to come a day in 10, 15, 20 years where I feel like I'm going to really absorb just the relational loss, but sudden death of someone young, unexpected comes with so many other challenges that no one ever prepared me for. And how do you plan a funeral for someone who was in many sense of the words of a Christian celebrity that the world was grieving and you're trying to make space for other people to grieve, but you have your own grief. You want to honor everybody else's grief because it's real and you know, it's real. Yeah. She she had a book in progress. How do you as a family think about that book being finished and being given out to the world and um, to, to their credit, Rachel's friends like Jeff Chu and Sarah Bessie, Jim Chafee, Rochelle Garner, these, these people stepped up in ways that were amazing. And I'm indebted to for the rest of my life, but it was hard. It was just, impossible to navigate still feels impossible to navigate okay a lot there uh wow yeah i realize i just talked for like seven minutes without taking a breath no it's fantastic <laughs> i mean hey get it out we're we're processing here although i am i mean okay let, let's stay with a little levity and then we'll jump back in yeah what is it like being on like a speaking and pr tour talking about the most painful season of your life over and over again my husband says I probably ought to write a book about like, you know, the history of Ferris wheels or something like that, you know, like something a little <laughs> bit more light, <laughs> like, because I, like it is, I mean, yeah. I didn't really think about it when I signed up to write this book that like, Hey, you're going to be talking about grief for many, many years to come. Yeah. In lots of ways, it's a gift because like I'm having this conversation with you right now, Dan, and I know I'm going to learn something about loss. And I'm going to learn something about how to process my loss. Every podcast interview I do, every conversation I have, I actually learn something new and I gain a new perspective. So it has certainly been of huge benefit and, and the, the, the blessings and the gifts of it are many, but it does take a toll. And I watch a lot of office reruns in the evening and Seinfeld yeah. to just kind of like have that mental oscillation <laughs> between confronting the worst thing that ever happened to me to just thinking about something funny and light and different, Yeah, you know? I found that my media consumption habits, which used to run 
definitely toward the dark and kind of uh, existential, you know, like your Requiem for a Dreams, your, yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. all that stuff. Like once I started seeing clients like third year of the doctorate mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of inching away from that stuff. Uh, and so that makes sense. One of the things you talked about, you know, when you were working with the aid workers and their resilience to trauma was meaningful connections, you know, having people in your life that you care about and that you can process things with and, and just have strong connections with. It sounds like in the aftermath of Rachel's death, given that hole in the center of the family, this multi-generational family system that you and your husband felt like, okay, like our job is to, at some level, sort of be in that hole and and Mm -hmm. to some extent replace some of those connections that went through Rachel. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the role of sort of strengthening those connections and what that's played in your processing of Mm. that grief and, and in making meaning out of, you know, your guys' responses to this senseless loss. Yeah. There's nothing that will reveal your own inadequacy like death and people respond in a lot of different ways when they are confronted with mortality, fragility, precariousness, <laughs> yeah. how vulnerable we all are. And some people just turn inward, they retreat, they numb, they try to distract themselves from the pain. Other people try to take even more control of their circumstances, become more controlling. And then some people kind of try to perform their way through it, if that makes sense. And kind of, I don't know if you're trying to like prove to the universe or prove to yourself that like, I'm up for the task. Like I'm not as fragile as I think I can do this. I can manage this. Everything's still fine. We're going to be fine. I kind of feel like for a while I tried to kind of jerry rig her presence into our family Hmm. for months to say like, not, not that I could replace her, but like, we're going to make new memories. It's going to be fine. Like we're going to come to Dayton every weekend and we're going to kind of step into her shoes and be the presence that it needs to be there for her kids and for my parents. And we're going to do all these things. And, and at some point you just kind of have to give up and say, it's changed. It's different. And all these people that I care about are going to have to figure out how to rebuild just like I'm figuring out how to rebuild. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing about grief that no one ever tells you is that not only are you going through the worst experience of your life, you're watching everyone you love most in the world go through the worst experience of their life. And I don't remember which was worse, like learning that Rachel was dying or watching my mother learn that Rachel was dying. Like it's excruciating. And so you just want to fix it for her. You want to fix it for you, but you want to fix it for her. And at some point I just had to say, I can't fix it for anyone. I can't fix it for my brother-in-law. I can't fix it for my niece and nephew. I can't fix it for my parents. I can't jerry-rig her existence into this life. It's gone. It's over. It's gone. And you have to kind of just not make peace with it, but just accept it. And, you know, I'm a pretty high-performing person And that's kind of my default when kind of everything hits the fan. I'm like, well, what can I do? What do I need to do? And I don't know what I'm trying to prove. Like I'm in therapy. We're working on it. Like 
Um, yeah. You know, I know some, I think you have a very healthy skepticism of the Enneagram. I test as a, a two and a three. If nothing else, it's just served to, re, to remind myself that like, okay, you have a propensity to want to jump in and help. Yeah. And that's, by the way, real. Yeah, that's real. Totally. It, yeah. It can, it, it doesn't, it's not like the Enneagram doesn't point at anything real about personalities. Obviously right. people right. have those traits and you, and I have some of the traits of a seven, you know, yes, yes uh, exactly. Yeah, I do like to escape pain through uh, extraordinary experiences. Yes, you don't yes. need the Enneagram to describe that, but nonetheless, the Enneagram does have language for that, and it does apply to me, yeah. and so it can be useful. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's just kind of good to bear in mind, like, okay, Amanda, like you're going to feel really good about yourself if you can be the martyr here. Um, right. You're also going to feel really good about yourself if you can produce an awesome redemptive work in the aftermath of this like loss, a book? kind of like a book, <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. kind of what I went to work at to maybe just prove to myself, like, I'm going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And you know what? God uses those things. I'm not. And, and it's a really and good book. Big. So I'm glad it's, you wrote it. I mean, you know, even if you did it for psychologically unhealthy right. reasons, I'm still glad you put I it out there. I think there were there were healthy and unhealthy yeah. reasons. You know, like I, I've always a, a, a approached life a little bit academically and curious. It was mostly curiosity. You know what yeah. I mean? It was mostly me saying I'm I'm just curious about what what tools and rituals and practices are out there to help me to help me process this, but all this to say, I mean, I'm not not sure I'm answering your question other than to say that, yeah, like you kind of get busy doing the thing you think you ought to be doing Mm -hmm. when somebody dies. And at some point you just have to really accept the fact that you can't fix it. You can't fix it. It strikes me that there's a, maybe a difference. And I don't know if there was for you between thinking about what you can do for your niece and nephew versus your mom, your aunt, Mm -hmm. your brother-in-law, Adults with fully formed brains versus children whose brains are developing and who lose their mom. Now, you might have thought, well, they're so young that that it doesn't really matter. It might have been different if they were like seven and nine, you know, or something like Mm -hmm. that. I'm curious if there are any conversations around treating those situations distinctly because of just developmental stages or if they were so little that it was like, well, they're going to have a different reality. And, and especially yeah. the, the youngest ones never going to know anything different at all. Yeah. Well, I think, I think for me, it was just the, the grief of seeing Rachel's life go in such a different direction and her children's lives go in the different direction that she planned. And I just have huge, enormous respect for my brother-in-law and for my, my parents and my brother-in-law's family and our friends in my hometown and the ways that people have stepped in to love. Cause that's what, I mean, that's what I learned in resilience is that like resilience training, I, I would tell people factors for resilience. The biggest one researchers seem to find, you can correct me if I'm wrong, cause you're, you're officially trained in this stuff, but it's just, do you feel unconditionally loved? Like you can go through an awful lot of trauma as a child, as an adult, but if you feel like you have that unconditional consistent love, you, you develop this ability to bounce back. And I think that that's what felt most important because I know even when there's kind of a lack of cognitive awareness, I know there's an impact for a very small child when they lose someone that's close to them. Mm-hmm. And I think about my own daughters and that like they have grown up in the aftermath of this tragedy, even if they can't name it or say it or describe it, 
they have a mom that's been grieving. They have yeah. a dad that's been oh, yeah. busy with a lot of responsibilities he didn't know he was going to have. Yep. What that's done to my attention to them. What's that done for, you know, my ava- emotional availability to them? Like they're going to, that legacy is written onto their personalities in many ways. Yes. And I can kind of hem and haw about that all day long and, and say, well, what can we do? I'm so upset about this or I'm so upset this has happened. But it's kind of life. A lot of children grow up with these huge disruptions. And so the thing I keep holding on to is love. Like, what do I need to do to make my niece and nephew feel just unconditionally loved and to make my children feel unconditionally loved? Even if this isn't perfect, even if they ended up watching like maybe one extra cartoon a day than I planted, (laughs) that I planned when, when, when I gave birth to them, what do I need to do to make sure they feel unconditionally loved? I'm not a psychologist yet, but my understanding of the research would be uh, right on. It is, especially for children, it's, you know, you can use the language of attachment, which is unconditional love and connection to specifically one or more attachment figure. But if you want to broaden it out, the community, uh, a child's essential experience, it's, yeah, it's acceptance and love. And that's why, you know, most therapy these days, you know, the first principle is, is this idea of unconditional positive regard for your client. And most people working today would agree, yeah, that's a precondition for therapeutic progress. And it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to thinking about the application of that in a non-therapeutic context, right? So, Mm. and there's something very beautiful about religion, Mm. uh, religions with a loving God at the center of them, and that love being filtered through the religious community and those meaningful connections with multiple people, multiple adults, multiple, mm. you know, uh, age cohorts and generations. And there might be something we really lose if we don't replace that. That's a little teaser for after the break to talk about grief rituals. Yes. Um, as well as wisdom traditions and uh, what you found in that research. So we'll be right back. like more you have permission you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dan that link is in the show notes patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them as well as access to the patron only facebook group which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change um, it's a great great community so again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. All right, we're back with Amanda. By the way, I never said the name of the book. It's called A Hole in the World, which is an Edna St. Vincent Millay reference. And I think she's my favorite poet. I haven't been reading her much recently, but I just liked that. She's one of my sister's favorite um, poets too. So. Yeah. Well, I want to actually, I want to sort of prime this conversation with an idea that I briefly mentioned a minute ago, which is that wisdom traditions, including religions have built up these, you know, practices and rituals over time, uh, over hundreds and thousands of years. And there's a kind of, uh, 
a peer review process of sorts where whatever works kind of sticks around and things that don't work tend to go by the wayside. Sometimes new ideas are improvements. Most of the new ideas don't end up being improvements just by virtue of the mathematics of it, you know, the probabilities. Yeah. And a lot of the grief rituals that people perform come out of these very, you know, ancient, frankly, wisdom traditions. And when we discard them for new things, Mm -hmm. there is some inherent risk. And I just Mm -hmm. think that that's something that especially people in this space, myself included, I think we tend to be so excited or anxious to free ourselves uh, of crusty old bullshit that we we might actually not be aware of the risk we're taking by Mm -hmm. doing so. Sometimes we don't have a choice, but that's just like a background thought. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say before we kind of get into some of the nuts and bolts, but I think that's an interesting overlay. It is. And it's interesting because I know sometimes people ask me or I wonder for myself, like, are you are you becoming more progressive or more more of a traditionalist or are you more orthodox or less orthodox than you were before? Huh. And it's it's just an interesting question because I think what I have developed a deep love for is history and rootedness and the inheritance from our mothers and fathers in the faith. And not everything they've handed us has been perfect, but there is something important about an ancient religion. There's something important about ancient rituals and ancient practices and ancient beliefs that have stood the test of time. And I think finding those holy threads that have woven their way from the very beginning, the life of Christ up through this point, what are those holy threads? And I think those are what are becoming more and more important to me. So I don't know, some might call that orthodoxy. Other people might call that stuffy fundamentalism. Yeah. Some might call it, you're a nerdy history enthusiast, but it's just interesting that the journey I've taken has made me really, really appreciate the, the history of the church and what it's given us. Yeah. So outline this kind of research project that you embarked on that, you know, that you talk about in the book. Yeah. I always tell people it's like, there's just a day, it just flashed up on my newsfeed, uh, an article about historic grief rituals. And I started reading and it was just really interesting. And there was one particular ritual that it talked about, which is Irish keening or the practice of wailing in a funeral that really caught my attention. So then, you know, I Googled keening and I started looking up the history of keening. Can I listen to a keen? Is there a funeral song or wail that's been recorded? And it's like, well, no, there are no recordings because it's this ancient sacred ritual that died out in the early 1900s and nobody knows exactly what they sounded like. And, you know, so then I just start kind of pulling on all those little threads and, and investigating. And that's what really started me on my my journey is one article that we will say providentially popped up in my, <laughs> or algorithmically. Both, both algorithmically <laughs> and providentially. Sure. Well, what else did you find besides the Irish stuff? So, you know, once you go down the path of Irish grieving traditions, well, there's a whole lot there. Um, most people are familiar with kind of the stereotypical, like rowdy Irish wakes, but there's right. a lot of really meaningful practices and traditions there that are just heavy laden with, with purpose and, and their, their communal. And so just kind of saying about the Irish tradition of grieving, then kind of led me down to kind of larger kind of Western grieving practices from earlier centuries. 
And a lot of people will ask me like, well, why didn't you study grief rituals from, you know, Asia or, you know, West Africa or whatever. There's so many grief rituals in those places that are alive and well, and that's absolutely true. What I was really curious about were what are, what are the rituals that I should have? Yeah. That we left behind that should be our inheritance, right? Yes. From European descent that have now have so few grief rituals left that we're no longer practicing them. What did we leave behind? I also I wanted to be careful about not unfairly appropriating a ritual by sure. like plucking it out of its cultural context and just kind of letting it speak to me without having this kind of broader understanding. Right. I do talk about some grief rituals from around the world that I learned about from some friends from those cultures. They would kind of tell me what they meant and how they related to some of the rituals I was studying. But yeah, that's what I was curious about. It's like, why did the West leave behind their rituals? Before we hop into why, I want to just bring a little bit of psychology in here. I've sort of gestured at this a little bit, but the reason that cognitive processing therapy is called cognitive processing therapy is that the work you are essentially doing with someone is getting them to process their traumatic Mm -hmm. experiences, which they have a tendency to avoid. In acceptance Mm -hmm. and commitment therapy, they call it experiential avoidance. You know, it's, it's basically just like in some sense, when you turn on the office, you're practicing experiential avoidance. But now we might say that that's a healthy right. thing at the end. You can't live in this all the time. You do need to give your mind a break. I'm not pathologizing yeah. that uh, activity at all. Yep. But if, for instance, you know, I heard something really difficult at work and then I come home and like all I really want to do is like get drunk or high for the evening. Yeah. That's experiential avoidance. And a better thing would yeah. be to talk about it. If I can't talk about it with my wife, yeah. is there someone else I can talk about it with? Can I journal about it? Can I pray yeah. about it and not avoid it, but like lean into it and get through it? Yeah. And so that's kind of my background in my mind of like, oh, I wonder, I want to be looking for that as we talk about some of these rituals. Yes. And that's exactly how the book actually came to be. Like, We'll talk about how the rituals allow you to confront your sorrow. But writing the book is what essentially allowed me to finally absorb what had happened to me. So I was kind of journaling and scribbling notes over the three-year period that I experienced all these losses. But it was studying these rituals just out of my own interest in my free time that really allowed me to start kind of naming some of the emotions I was feeling. Like I just had so many complex Feelings, anger, um, resentment, guilt, shame, embarrassment. Why do I feel embarrassed that my sister died? What's going on there? Like, and I didn't understand what was going on. I I had, you know, I had a great counselor that I talked to like twice a month, but you know, it's like, for the most part, I was just in this busy stage of motherhood, career, helping my parents, all this stuff. And so just taking some time to do some research on these rituals helped me really kind of absorb and understand what was going on in my life. As I looked at some of my journal entries, I was actually working on another book proposal at the time, something my sister and I were working on together when she died. And I kind of set that proposal aside and said to my agent, would this be a helpful idea instead? Like we were in the thick of COVID-19 by that point and grief was very present with everyone. And I just said, this is what I'm learning. This is what I'm journaling. I think you might've been onto something. I mean, (laughs) Well, it felt it was kind of a moment of real clarity of saying, 
this might not just be for me. Right. This is helping me. This is helping me learn. This might not just be for me. And then the writing of the book, it just it was all those hours at the App State Library in the dusty old Victorian bereavement practices section. They actually have a wow. section on <laughs> Victorian bereavement practices that I understood, I think, my grief for the first time, you know? And so for me, just the writing of the book was such a gift because it, yeah, it really allowed me to process what I was going through. So I will just say, if people want to hear you talk about Irish Keening, they can check out your interview on the Bible for Normal People with Pete mm-hmm. and Jared, because that's kind of the main focus of this part of your conversation. So let's skip that. Yeah. A lot of our listeners listen to that show anyway. Josh will put a link to that episode in the show notes. Talk to us about another r- ritual besides the yeah. Keening. One of the rituals I was really interested in was telling the bees, because my husband's a beekeeper. And so- you know, this is a ritual I could have actually really practiced if I dared put on a bee suit. Telling the bees is that? Does this mean that you go out and you tell the bees who about what you've lost? Yes, Dan. This ritual is now a very hot topic because there was a popular article that just went out about how the queen's beekeepers went out and told her bees. I, I looked at my phone the other day and I was like, why is, why am I getting so many messages? And it was because anybody that read my book messaged me and said, they're telling the bees. And I know what this is because of your book, but yeah, you're exactly right. That's, a, that's exactly what the practice is, is it's the belief that if someone in the household dies, you have to, if you have beehives, you have to go to the beehives and tell the bees what happened who died and different regions have different, very specific rituals around it. Some regions you have to sing like a song to the bees to inform them and others you have to tap on the hive with the key. Cause they know Morse code. I'm sorry. The bees know Morse code. <laughs> the bees know Morse code. Um, there are different rhymes from different regions of what wow. you say. And in some regions you have to turn the hive to face another direction. You're supposed to drape black morning cloth on the hives, wow. um, leave them food from the funeral next to the hive, all of these things. And so some of these superstitions that I studied were really, really interesting. So telling the bees, the belief that you have to cover mirrors when someone dies, Mm -hmm. um, because if you don't cover the mirror, the person might, the dead person might see their reflection as their soul is departing the body. And then they'll be stuck in this in-between between life and death, and they won't be able to peacefully proceed into the afterlife. Before we go any further... Yes. This is so interesting. And I just, I got to highlight this and, and get your thoughts. So the bees, the various superstitions around, or the or just kind of the ritualistic directions that you follow for the bees. And then the same thing with the covering of the mirror. What's so interesting is that you can separate out in your mind the superstitious element from the like mm-hmm. practical benefit of the activity. So the mm-hmm. mirror might be the more clear than the bees. The bees, I was just going to say, you know, you go through these motions in a intentional fashion and it's a way that you process things. Obviously the bees are not picking mm-hmm. up on, I don't think, may, I mean, who knows, but I'm not mystical enough to think that the bees are really picking up on anything uh, specific that they're going to do anything differently. However, the mirror is interesting because if you cover mirrors, you don't look at yourself in the mirror anymore. And wow, talk about like, I'm grieving the loss of you. I am not going to put my intention on how I look. Holy crap. Right. Like, 
you know? Well, and so covering mirrors is this really ubiquitous like practice. It's practiced all over the world, multiple cultures. And I, I read one historian who said so many of these rituals, their origins are unknown, which just goes to show that a ritual in many ways is just an empty vessel. It's something to do when you don't know what to do. But many people, tra- like in, in the Jewish household, it's very common to cover the mirrors. And there are different reasons in the Jewish tradition for covering mirrors than there are in, say, like the Lithuanian yes. tradition, the, the Cajun tradition. Because the reason doesn't really matter. It's like the reason is what you tell the kids when they ask you why we do it. But maybe the reason they do it is because it takes the focus off of themselves. That's what works about it. And it allows, you know, like something works. If if things get passed down yeah. for many generations, especially in popping up in different cultures, that's because it really works. Right. There's something fundamental yeah. to human individual and group yeah. psychology that this is getting at. And it's scratching it. And we're getting a benefit from it. Right. And in the Jewish home, part of the motivation of covering mirrors is because it was believed that a griever should really be able to just focus on their grief and not how they appear, not on their appearance when they're grieving, because we all know like grief ravages the appearance (laughs) of a mourner, you know? And so you shouldn't be distracted by saying, I I wish I looked better. I wish I was doing better. Um, It just gets, gets a way of giving you permission to just be fully yourself. But Jewish mystics also believed that the demonic forces were particularly present in the aftermath of death. And there was this belief that if you peered in the mirror for too long or the self-obsession, like, how am I doing? How am I appearing? That the demons would affix themselves to you and make your experience of grief even worse. And gosh, I actually believe what you will about demons and Satan, but there's some, but there's some real truth to the idea that like, this constant self-assessment and performative yep. approach that we take to life will not do in grief. It simply will not do. Yep. To me, it was just so fun to kind of tease out all these different meanings and purposes behind all of them. Um, some of them were purely fear-based. Like there are some purely fear-based superstitions, right. like telling the bees. It was like this, if you didn't tell the, the bees, the belief was that they would fly away right. or die now. I know you just said that the bees don't know, but I will say that our hive swarmed the year after my sister died and we had not told them what had happened. So that is just anecdotal. (laughs) Is swarming good or bad? Well, it all depends on how you look at it. It can be good. It can be bad. Okay. So the swarming can be good or bad. (laughs) What I was thinking was like, you can't just like hire someone else to go tell the bees. That's not like, that's not going to get it done. You have to go tell the bees. You have to engage in it yourself. Now, maybe the attendants, like the queen's attendants were very close with her and needed to process their grief. Then in that case, I guess it's good that they go tell the bees. But I was thinking sort of like, Maybe like her children should go tell the bees. Like, you know, that that's yeah. kind of what I well, was thinking when, yeah. In these, right. In a smaller agrarian society. Yeah. It would be the right. wife. It would be the child. I and mean, there's some, if you look up, you just Google telling the bees, there's some beautiful paintings depicting mm. this ritual. One of them's hanging on our dining room wall of just like a, a child going yeah. out to the hives to tell the hives that their parents oh. had died. Like it's, and I think that like, to me, what that ritual taught me was that, Hey, this fear I'm experiencing is because I'm afraid my whole life's going to fall apart. Now it's not just that I miss her. It's this fear of a loss of livelihood per se. Like that's what people in that time period, like if they lost the bees, if the bees flew away, their livelihood's gone. 
And that same fear, like just the, the precarity of life that death reveals, I think has to be worked through, has to be confronted, has to be named. And that's kind of, to me, what this ritual said to me was, you're scared, you're scared. But my husband will say that the best beekeepers are the kind of people that can calm their fears before they go out to the hive because bees smell fear. They have the pheromone thing going on. And so the reason he's such a great beekeeper is because he is a very calm, deliberate, slow moving, smooth in his motions. He doesn't threaten the bees with his anxiety or his jitteriness. He's just very calm. And the act of telling the bees actually forces you to kind of calm your body down and just, just to take a moment and be at peace with your circumstances and go and form these members of your household, the beehive, what's happened. And then you move forward. So it just, it, it just exposes so many different things about the grief experience, you know, let's apply it to white evangelical Protestantism briefly. Why not? <laughs> because that's what that's what the people come for. Uh, no, we're all still processing this. So there is it's maybe a caricature, and it is certainly not the experience of everyone in your Protestant evangelical church or whatever. But you do get the sort of people who jump straight to God needed another angel. By the way, you get this in American culture. I think you might even get more of this outside the church than you get it in the church. But the language used is churchy language, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, God needed an angel or she's in a better place now, or it's kind of jumping straight to resolution and using, um, I think that what's pernicious is using the spiritual language to bypass the grieving because then you, you think, Oh, I guess, well, what God wants me to do is to get past this because that's a Bible verse, you know? Um, and what we know about grief is like, no, I don't, you know, if God exists, God does not want you to to run right past it because that's sure not the way that God created you uh, and your brain. So I don't know. I'm sure you have thoughts on sort of that application and, and how those rituals might be missing in that particular context. You can hear me talk a little bit more about this on the the Bible for normal people as well. But I think, I think this idea that we have, I think, in American evangelicalism, that happiness somehow equals holiness, that like, if you have your theological system, you know, uh, theology of suffering firmly in place, you know, if you just know all the right things, then whatever happens to you, um, God's going to give you a sense of peace. He's going to, he's going to make the experience of grief somehow less uncomfortable, emotionally uncomfortable for you. There's this idea that if we somehow succumb to anguish, if we succumb to anger, to regret, to to despair, that that somehow means that we're not holy, that we don't have a good theology, that we don't trust him enough. Like just trust God. You know what I mean? God won't give you anything more than you can handle. I mean, you know, we know all the phrases. And I I think that's the thing that was deconstructed. Uh, I I don't like the word deconstruction because it always gets me in trouble when I use it. But that is, those are the things that I know. Ah, Yikes. But those are, that's the thing that I think I deconstructed in my grief was that like, actually the God I met in the Bible as a griever, once I became a griever and I reread the Bible, 
I found a God who was a griever. I found a God who's actually quite emotional, like a God who experienced regret, a God who experienced anguish, a God who argued with himself in the garden of Gethsemane about whether or not he should die on the cross, like a, a tortured God, a God that lamented and was bereaved by the loss of relationship with his children. And I just thought, well, God's above all that. Like, and so should I, I should be above all that too, but he's, he's not. And I don't think he asked us to be either. And so that, I don't know. I felt like the Christian subculture did not give me permission to grieve, to truly grieve, but the Bible sure did. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering if like a rule of thumb that people could ask themselves in a situation like this, if they're going through grief and someone comes to them is like, is this person saying this to avoid their own suffering? Mm-hmm. If so, all right, just ignore it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I understand that you're trying to uh, avoid your own suffering or maybe they are not saddened because they didn't really know the person or whatever, but they're trying, they want, it's called, we call it the writing reflex in uh, mm-hmm. therapy training. You know, they're trying to like end my suffering yeah. so that uh-huh. they'll, you know, they can feel better. Like they have this need to end my suffering. Right. Or are they saying this like out of a place of having grieved and they also, they've found some hope on the other side of that. And what's tricky is the same words could be either. And you actually don't Mm -hmm. know from the words to say, you know, you can imagine like a deeply connected mystic saying she's in a better place and really Mm -hmm. meaning it and not trying to. You know, like you can imagine those exact words being said by someone that you're like, oh, I kind of trust you, (laughs) you know, but the person who just comes up at the funeral, well, you know, okay, Mm -hmm. Amanda, she's in a better place. Like you can be good. All right. Now we're, this is, now we're doing experiential avoidance. Right. And we're just slapping Christian language on it. Right. And that to me is the difference between a gifted condoler or someone offering condolence a, a lousy condoler will say things to try to make you feel better and they want you to feel better so that they can feel better because yep. what is it? Ella Wheeler, Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It's like laugh in the world laughs with you weep and you weep alone. Nobody wants like grief is infectious. Nobody wants to be around a griever. So I need to make you feel better so that I feel better. And that's got a weird kind of TV culture tie in, you know, of like just the fact that all we want is like, pretty people having fun all the time on television. There's something yep. gross and and like American about that too. Yeah. I know. It's like, we want to be around people we want to be like, and I don't want to be like you because you right. lost someone, right. you know, you're, you're sad. And it, a gifted condoler though, because there has to be something that you offer as someone giving condolence to a griever. I mean, the first thing is presence, I think just presence. And we learned that from the Jewish practice of sitting Shiva But the other thing I think that's helpful for, because I don't think, I don't like when someone comes and they're just like, I'm just going to sit with you and not say anything. Sometimes that's nice. Sometimes it's awkward. What it really helped me was someone who said something to fortify me. And I use that word really specifically because I learned that the word for comforter in scripture, you know, that scripture that we go to so often, like comfort one another with the comfort you've been giving, given I didn't, I never liked that verse in my grief because Mm. I was like comfort, what comfort? I don't feel comfort. I don't feel emotionally comforted. I feel emotionally in turmoil, but that word for comfort is actually better translated fortify. Mm. Um, It's, it's, it's meant not as a palliative or a numbing agent, but as a, 
I'm going to set you on your feet. Like, let me set you on your feet. And so some of the best things people said to me, and I write about this in the book, were things like, God will help you. Because it's not like, it's not like a theological treatise, right? And it's not like a, I'm going to make you feel better. I'm just going to tell you something that's true. Like, I think God's going to be with you. I think God's going to be with you. And just that statement, that's all he said. Like that Mm. was like, I fed off of that condolence for months and months. Another friend who just came up to me and said, Hey, I don't know exactly what you're going through because every grief is different, but I just want you to know, I lost my sister 10 years ago and it sucks. And I survived. I was like, okay, like that's a good condoler, you know, like that's that's a really, really, really good condoler. Cause she's not asking you to carry the burden of her grief. She's just saying, you're going to, you're going to survive. I think you can survive, you know? Um, But it wasn't like, oh, it gets better or, you know, that you're going to find a silver lining or she's in a better place. It's just like, it sucks and you're going to survive. You know, that's what somebody who offers real comfort, real fortification is going to say to you. Well, time's up. Oh, (laughs) what a fantastic conversation, Amanda. Thank you so much. Oh, Dan, I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for having me and thank you for the good and hard conversations that you're having uh, with people and just giving people permission to explore, explore their faith. I think it's important. Well, I love doing it. I do it almost compulsively. So I don't know how much uh, thanks I deserve, but really the book is beautifully written. It's called A Hole in the World. There will obviously be a link in the show notes Anything else you want people to be able to find you on? You know, I don't hang out on Twitter that much because it's a scary, scary place. Good. But sometimes I'm there at Amanda Heldo Pelt and same on Instagram, Amanda Heldo Pelt. I, I post a lot about Appalachian grief rituals because um, I'm here in Appalachia kind of learning about how my my people have done this for years, still continuing to learn. And um, you can find some of my music that I write about grief on uh, Amanda Opelt on Spotify or wherever you, wherever you get your music. Fantastic. In fact, Josh, pick a song and uh, play that here at the end. That's how we'll wrap up (laughs) today's episode. Pick, pick a, pick one that sounds good for grieving, Josh. I'm not going to, not to put too much pressure on you. Um, All right. Wow. I really, what a, what a great start to my day. Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks, Dan. Sadness suffocates you Batters and berates you Eat, oh 
It will help you breathe again. 